every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. Welcome to Conversations with Dead People, a post-mortem podcast on the works of Joss Whedon. My name's Paul, I'm your host, and I'm typically joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia as we make our way through the critically acclaimed series Buffy the Vampire Slayer and its spin-off series Angel. Uh, and back with me again uh, this time around is Elizabeth Rambo, um, still Associate Professor of English at Campbell University. Uh, she continues to be a contributing author to television finales from Howdy Doody to Girls and will forever be editor of Buffy Goes Dark essays on the final two seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Elizabeth, thank you for sticking around for a solid week, just waiting to get to these episodes. <laughs> just waiting. Well, I had to watch them, rewatch both of them again, which is painful, but also, I, I have to say, I'm a co-editor. Did you say that? Co-editor of Buffy Goes Dark with James B. South and Lynn Y. Edwards. So I have we all not, worked really hard. I have not been saying that, and shame on me, because I have had James South on the show before. So shame yeah. on me for not even mentioning that. But yes, co-editor. Obviously the most important editor, but co-editor. <laughs> Thanks, Vanova. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um. All right, so yeah, we're here to talk. So the last time you came on board with me, we were talking about uh, Normal Again, which uh, I think we had a livelier conversation about than I was expecting. Good. Um, but I have been dreading, I, I'd say these two episodes, but really it's just this first one. I've been dreading uh, this first episode we're going to talk about yeah. since I started this podcast project like a hundred years ago or however, however long it's taken me to get to this point. Yeah. Um, but we, we've reached that point. So I will, uh, it's, I don't know if it's going to be a fun conversation, but it will be a conversation. So let me give the spoiler warning. Um, and then maybe a content warning and then we'll get into it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Probably a content warning. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, if you're new to this podcast, uh, Conversations with Dead People, it's not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. That means spoilers and a lot of. I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the Series all the way through at least once, pause this, go do that, uh, make your peace with it, and come come back and hear what we have to say. Um, so... With that out of the way, uh, Elizabeth, if you're ready, let's go to work. And the first step of that work is going to be to give a content warning. I'm saying this now instead of at the very top, because some people, uh, 
skip all of that messy intro nonsense and just get right to the meat of the matter. So the meat of the matter this time around is episode 619, Seeing Red, and 620, uh, Villains. And I want to give a content warning here and now where people are likely to hear it. Both of these episodes contain troubling subject matter, uh, particularly this first one, Seeing Red. So uh, it deals with issues of uh, sexual assault, abuse, um, murder, which is a common thing on Buffy, I guess. I don't know if that requires a content warning, but yeah. There, well, uh, the particular kind of murder in this one. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a difficult subject matter in in these episodes and seeing red in particular. And I cannot guarantee where the conversation is going to take us. So content warning for that sort of material. This is legitimately the first time I've given an official content warning to any podcast I've done, which probably is too little too late, but there you have it. Um, all right. So seeing red. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, so at the end of um, Entropy, we Willow and Tara together again. They're all so happy. It's wonderful. I mean, just this, like, ugh. Um, and, I mean, this, towards the end of season six, it's like all these episodes just really flow together. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, Seeing Red opens what's obviously the next morning. They're still in bed. Um, oh, and this is this is the infamous episode that adds Amber Benson to the uh, opening credits. The first and last time, yeah, that she makes it into the opening credits. Which my first thing I want to ask. I'm sure this has been discussed ad nauseum, but first thing I want to ask is, do you think that was a typical? <laughs> maybe good natured, but whatever, uh, Joss Whedon middle finger <laughs> to the audience, well, or was it meant to be, was it paying homage to Amber Benson? Both. Okay. You know, the first time, the first time Joss did that was in the very first right. episode of Buffy. Right. When he put, um, the fellow's name I'm forgetting, Jesse. the actor's name I'm forgetting, but that he played Jesse, his name was in the opening credits. Yeah. And he was killed off immediately. Now, but the the whole terror thing's a little bit different. Oh, it's so different. Because, it's so different. Because we had no idea who anybody was in that very first episode, so we couldn't necessarily well, have our we had hearts no, ripped out. I, we had no idea, but he his character was set up as like he's Xander's best friend. Right. He's, he's clearly it's implied that he will be a major character. Right, but this Amber Benson thing follows. Oh, uh, yeah. seasons of people different. saying, come on, why does Amber Benson not get to be in the opening credits? She's a main character. And yeah, it's just it's very different. I mean, I can't you're you're probably right. It is probably both uh, a, a middle finger insult and a thank you, Amber Benson thing to to yeah. give her one and only appearance in the main title sequence. And it's the episode where they kill her. Yeah, I, I mean, it's. I'm not sure it's a middle finger well, as such, but it's a, it's a, uh, what do I want. Um, it, it's a distraction. Yeah. It's you know? a, it's, it's a, like, it's a red herring. It's a cruel misdirect. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's like, oh, look, they're back together. And now she's full. Oh, no, she's not. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. There's just <sighs> something so cruel and manipulative about it. Because like you said, it Entropy, the, the previous episode ended with, oh, our long nightmare is finally over. Willow and Tara are back together happily ever after. Now, right. it's easy with 20 plus years of hindsight uh, for for me to say, because I am the cynic uh love-hate relationship with Joss Whedon guy uh it's easy for me to say there was never ever going to be a happy ending literally for anybody ever in any Joss Whedon series <laughs> from now till the end of time so obviously the end of entropy was telling us it was flashing a neon sign yeah don't get used to this mm-hmm. yeah but in the moment it it seemed particularly <laughs> just brutal but. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, but you can see, I mean, trouble starts almost immediately because one of the first things that happens in this um, bed conversation is that Tara reveals to Willow that Buffy and Spike have had something going on. Right. And Willow says, why didn't she tell me? Mm-hmm. You know, this Willow's insecurities about, is she really Buffy's friend? That kind of thing. Um, so. Also worth pointing out that bed scene, uh, the, the morning after scene, is mm-hmm. the first time that they ever had a, a naked in bed scene together. Yeah, so it's, uh, I think I read this somewhere. It's the first uh, lesbian love making scene on network television. So Really? Yeah, I know they. I know Buffy missed the first, or did they? I, I'm pretty sure they missed the first le- on-screen lesbian kiss. Mm-hmm. Um, Although, but... yeah, that was in at least for this show, it was in the body. Yeah, and but it probably wasn't the first one. But yeah. yeah. Anyways. Okay. So yeah, so, so things are already starting to fall apart in other ways the center Um, cannot hold yeah yeah so i i want to say that um i keep looking for opportunities to clearly fun or inventive or imaginative like dusting scenes (laughs) yeah i do like the fact that as, as far as i know this is the first time we've seen a vampire like kick buffy in the face mid dust Oh, yeah. Uh, I thought that was good. I thought that was cool. Yeah, that's true. So I absolutely love all caps. Dawn's reaction to finding out that Willow and Tara are back together again. So adorable. She's so ecstatic. Yeah. Happy about. I mean, Tara's been until she left the house. She was effectively Dawn's parent figure. Because yeah. Buffy was so out of it. Yeah. So. Um. What else? Uh, I just, I'm just. Dawn and Spike have a nice little scene. Yeah, too. yeah. That was literally my next note. As I continue to adore scenes between Spike and Dawn. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, it got a little unpleasant. There. I love the relationship between Spike and Dawn, particularly when it's uh, as it usually is when it's sort of. Um, protect it when spike is being protective of dawn or when dawn's relying on spike and there was a lot of that in this scene yeah but uh, that's true still i love the chemistry that those two actors had together on screen 
But I think there's something going on here. I mean, this is part of the step. Uh, so the journey that Spike is taking, like what is the nature of my relationship to Buffy? Mm -hmm. It doesn't end in a good place, obviously, but right. Um, I feel, <laughs> excuse me. We're so timid about <laughs> getting into this episode. Um, like I don't, I usually, well, usually there, my I mean, notes, <laughs> usually in my notes, I go like point by point. Like I, I jot down notes as I'm rewatching the episode. And so yeah. I, I kind oh, of, I've got a lot. <laughs> I kind of, well, I have a lot too, but they are literally only about like the, those two scenes. <laughs> so well, we I don't have about, a lot. We can talk about the, the trio trying to retrieve the orbs of Neslacon, which it, absurd yeah see not a single note on my sheet about any of that i didn't write uh, anything oh. about that at all so yes let's talk about that let's <laughs> let's work our way through the episode mm. before we get to the nightmare well i think that's, that's actually kind of an interesting scene because um there's flaying which there's going to be more flaying uh, yes later yeah, yeah. um there's more sort of distancing of Jonathan from Warren and Andrew mm -hmm. and the, you know, they make him do the dangerous work. And uh, it's an interesting dynamic that it's, it's a between those three characters, you've gotten a microcosm return to high school. Oh yeah. Thing, because yeah. the power dynamics taking place between those, they started out as a group, well, you could argue that at, even at the very beginning, Warren was over the overpowering, the overbearing member. But more or less, they started out as a group of friends, just like nerd friends who all shared the mm -hmm. same interests or whatever. And it has gradually become Warren is the bully, which is ironic because he, you know, he feel there's a man. There is a larger conversation that can and should take place around the this show's depiction of nerd culture and its attitude about its own fans. But um, yeah. Uh, what happens when the bully gets power? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So Warren becomes the bully. Andrew becomes, I don't even know what you call the, the toady, the sycophant, the lackey, yeah. whatever the sidekick mm -hmm. to the bully. And Jonathan just becomes the nerd that the bully and his lackey pick on. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, a weird dynamic which is believable and disturbing yes very much so yeah um i mean it's just this weird scene where they finally get these mysterious orbs whatever they are and andrew's saying the orbs they're everything i ever dreamed of it's like it's like what are you talking about? It's just... yeah um yeah i mean the sexual innuendo is just bizarre Oh, it yeah. goes off the charts in this episode. Yeah, off the charts. Um, but Warren using those orbs to give himself superpowers and saying, I'm going to share, but Jonathan knows that's not going to happen because Warren just is enjoying that way too much. Right. Yeah, and I love, uh, I love how Jonathan... I mean, he's obviously, for the past few episodes, he's been exhibiting... Uh, concerns or doubts or paranoia about his place in this group. Yeah. But this is the episode where he just, he stops even pretending. I mean, he did cut, he stopped short of saying it right to Warren's face, but he clearly n sees what's happening 
and yeah. is looking for a way out. And uh, he's looking for a way out, but he's not. There's a point at which he takes some action, but for the most part, he's not brave enough to actually strike out or right. leave. Right. Yeah. Also, this is the first time that I remember, at least. I don't. I, I don't know if I'd noticed this before or if I've seen anyone comment on it, but this is the first time I can remember realizing that the orbs of Nezlacon, mm-hmm. like they grant him uh, strength and invulnerability, but it looks like each orb does a different thing. Like one of them grants him strength and one of them grants him invulnerability because when he's explaining that, there's just a, a microsecond before the camera cuts to one of the other characters when he says, uh, I don't remember what he says for a strength or invulnerability, but he holds out one of them to say strength. And uh, then he continues and says invulnerability, but the camera cuts away right before you get the full scene. But oh, I don't know. I don't know yeah. why. I, don't I didn't know. pick up on that. Good for you. Yeah. I don't know why that it, it's not important, but I just, for I realized, oh, he's like, he's saying that, which, which I guess just means if Buffy had broken one of them, he would have lost one of those powers. But mm-hmm. anyways. Um, okay. Yeah. Makes sense. So, yeah, I like the flaying, the whole flaying thing. I'm so glad that we don't ever have to endure seeing Willow wearing Warren's skin. Not yet. I'm glad. <laughs> well... See, now you're creeping me out because I don't remember if that happens. I didn't think it well, did. but <laughs> it, it does in a sense. In season seven, when she's overwhelmed with guilt, she oh. actually turns into Warren. Oh, okay. Okay. Which is that, so, yes. That's also That's also disturbing. But at least it's yes, not it's, her, like, draped not... in a Warren no, suit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, she didn't go, like, uh... oh, gosh, was it Buff? What? What? Buffalo Bill? Was that the killer's name in Silence of the Lambs? Oh, yeah. Ooh, gosh. Yeah, yeah. No. She didn't go that far. No, she didn't go that far. Didn't no. put the lotion in the basket. Well, so it wasn't literal, but it was metaphorical. Right. Right. And visually, she appeared to be worn, so. Right. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Okay. So spoilers, let's be sold, everybody. So, all right. <laughs> um, um, all right. Yeah. So what else happens? <laughs> um... So there's some reconciliation between Buffy and Xander. So some some people are Ugh. starting to <laughs> before come back together. Before yeah, the reconciliation uh, happens, there's a. I mean, yeah. So they come together uh, to to talk, and it gets ugly before it gets better. Yeah. So as I in my notes, Spike I say doesn't I can have a soul. Right. In my notes, I wrote, I continue to adore scenes between Spike and Dawn. And the very next note was, and I continue to hate any scene where Xander talks about Spike. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's just stuck on this. He says, I don't understand how you could have any kind of relationship with Spike. He doesn't have a soul. He just has the chip. But I think they're just, I mean, I'm not justifying this. I think Xander's. Xander just has this block where it comes to Spike, but mm-hmm. the writers are trying to emphasize for us because they're setting this up. Spike, the chip in Spike, and how Spike personally is developing something. Mm-hmm. He needs to understand and he he's, wants to make a distinction for himself. What 
are his feelings a result of just this chip or right what so that's why Xander has to keep harping on it and it's tough that it has to be Xander but so I want to Xander I want to ask you because when the reconciliation part of this Buffy and Xander talk comes around he still it's it's it feels like it's still a sort of conditional uh, reconciliation or whatever. There's still an odd twist to it. So how do you feel about the suggestion that, and, and it's, it's probably more complicated than this, but the suggestion certainly exists that Xander is more upset about uh, Buffy's relationship with Spike and the the breakdown in communication between the two of them or whatever than he is about his own relationship with Anya. Um, hmm. Well, at this point, that's what he's talking about because he feels that he's losing his friendship with Buffy. Right. Although I think he will always have a little bit of longing for some kind of romance with Buffy, although I think he's given that up for the most part. But when he says, um, Buffy says, uh, what I do with my personal life is none of your business. And Xander says it used to be. Mm-hmm. I think he's talking about their friendship. Yeah. Oh, no, I agree. And But yeah, why isn't he going after Aunt Anya? Yeah, uh, that struck me too. It's like, he's why isn't he going after Aunt Anya? I think he feels like there's no point. Yeah. Um, I mean, I he does creep around outside her window at one point yeah. outside the magic box but I, I i wrote down montage of loneliness <laughs> yes <laughs> xander wandering around the street and anya dusting in the magic box yeah yeah so. um, i i wish that we could have gotten a more nuanced moment with xander because you're right he, when he when she says it's none of your business first of all pam and i my wife pam and i both cheered like when she said that when she's like my personal life is none of your business yeah. uh, we were both like yes that's right yeah um, but then his response of it used to be um i have a knee-jerk reaction to that just because i have a knee-jerk reaction to xander at this point but deep down i'm like he is actually bringing up uh if not valid at least a realistic sort of issue that people have with the notion of growing up and that is, I, I think it's worth asking why, when we, when we grow up, we almost inevitably distance ourselves from our friends in terms of now our personal life becomes less of their business. Like, I, I don't know where I'm getting at here. I don't know what, how I'm saying this, but when he says, yeah, you know, it used to be like, we used to share everything. Um, yeah. There, there. I guess there is a point to be made that Xander has never hidden his emotions from his friends or whatever. True. They yeah. know everything about his relationship or whatever. And uh, there was a time where that was like the circle of friends. They shared everything. And now they're mm-hmm. grown up. And that means cutting each other out of certain aspects of their lives. And but and that, that's true. And that's basically what happened in Hell's Bells. It's mm-hmm. like he was having all these doubts. He didn't talk to it, to anyone about it, and mm-hmm. that demon appealed to his insecurities, and he just cut out. Right. Um, if he told anybody what was going on with him for real, they could have dealt with it. Yeah. Um, 
I, I think as far as Xander missing Anya and being concerned about Anya in the next scene in the bar where a girl tries to pick him up and he immediately goes off into a you know a sob story that refers to Anya. Right. I think that shows that he is upset about that. Didn't the he is did, depressed? Didn't we get a scene with Riley in the same the same way? Same bar. Uh, I don't know. Same. I don't know if it was the same guy. Uh, it might have been, but I thought we had a very similar scene with Riley, where he, where some girl was hitting on him, and he just used it as an opportunity to talk about his failing relationship. Uh, maybe I. Uh, it's been a long time since I. Yeah, I can't remember. Watched that that those episodes. I mostly was just trying um, to but... conflate Xander and Riley so that people that hate <laughs> Riley would transfer some of that hatred into Xander. <laughs> Anyways, that's very possible. Um. But I think that's that scene though with Xander in the bar is kind of similar though to the scene where Anya's trying to do her vengeance demon thing, and where the girl finally starts yes. wishing that her boyfriend would be, you know, inflicted with horrible vengeance. Um, Anya's too involved with, yeah, <laughs> talking about how Xander is horrible. Yeah. Um, so they both are missing each other. That was a funny scene. And um I I I wanted to say something about how well, but this is the next episode. We'll get to it. Okay. So where how many how many more steps do we have before we get into the ugliness I think here? We're there. Are we there? Yeah. Dang. Dang. You okay. know, I, I transcribed this whole thing and it is super long. This is the longest scene in in the episode. The bathroom scene? Yeah. Hmm. Um there's there's one cut where they probably had a commercial, which is astounding. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's really long. It's horrifying. Uh, okay, right before it, there's Buffy's out slaying in her usual way. That's where she gets injured, which is not like her. I, I think that just shows how upset she is about everything. Because mm-hmm. you was know that... her emotions affect her performance. At times. That was that was the was that the mid dust vamp. I think so. Yeah, man, for some reason, maybe it's just because where I wrote it in my notes, I thought that was like the I was thinking that was the cold open or whatever the pre credit scene. But no, it it happens right before the yeah bathroom scene. OK, which is <laughs> I don't know. It's it's weird for us to ex- for us to believe that um, with all the fighting that we've seen her do and all the damage we've seen her take a mid dust vamp kicking her into a into a headstone significantly injured her enough that we're supposed to believe it affects her ability to fight off spike. I agree. It is kind of unbelievable, but there has to be a setup, I guess. But I mean, the only justification I can give is like I said, I think sometimes Buffy's emotional state does affect her performance. Right. Her slaying. Yeah. Um, Sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. I mean, I know they included that in there because they wanted they wanted to complicate the issue and they wanted to put in multiple explanations for viewers, like maybe this is why, or maybe you know. Um, yeah. But I personally, I personally read it as it's less a fa- it's less a matter of she's physically injured or weakened or whatever, and just that the like you said, the emotion of it, her state of mind, is what's affecting her 
physical performance here. Yeah. So. I think, I think that gray bathrobe is what really sells it. Like she is not, this is not cute. Yummy sushi pajama up, you know, perky right. Buffy. This is right. Depressed Buffy. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. She's in a very drab, normal bathrobe. She's not, she doesn't have her, uh, expensive, but stylish boots mm-hmm. or whatever. What, what is it? Is it expensive, but stylish or comfortable, uh, but stylish? I can't remember what her boots were now. Yeah. Gosh, I used to have that memorized, but yeah. anyways, <laughs> this, this scene has us all for clumped. Um, yeah. Okay. So the scene starts off with him coming in to apologize. Uh, and there is, there's a moment at the beginning of the scene where it had the potential to play out as another one of the sincere and, and all, you know, mature interactions between the two. I agree. And yet I think it's inappropriate from the start for him to just walk into her bathroom. It is. And I, I, I can't believe I'm saying, I wonder if that was intentional because I think everything they do is intentional, but yeah, there's already, There's already people who have issues. The issue has already been raised about, you know, Spike has permission to come and go. He's been invited into the house. But then when you when you reduce that or when you focus that uh, he can come and go at will thing into the the sanctuary of the bathroom, it's even more. Uh, yeah. Uh, that that focuses a, a spotlight on that. Yeah, I think so. Um, he's he's already crossing a boundary. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand he wants to talk, but and I, yes, I mean he initially expresses concern. Mm-hmm. He notices she's hurt, mm-hmm. <laughs> but he never, no matter what she says to him, he never accepts her rejection. She says, "Get out." No, he has an agenda. We yeah. have to talk. Which, which we have to talk. <laughs> so, <laughs> the the here's here. This is the content warning. This is the trigger warning. Everybody, it's gonna get it's gonna get complicated right here. So, obviously, um, I this this episode is tainted for me and for a lot of viewers, but for me personally, it's tainted because I was on original airing and continue to be so invested in the story of the, the arc that Spike goes over, mm-hmm. goes through and by his, uh, the interpretation that so many other fans. And I believe some of the writers have of the character that I just don't think jives with what I see in the character. So yeah. from at times, I tend to look at this episode and this scene as one of those, uh, <laughs> one of those markers that the the sort of anti-spike writers wanted to put in to remind us i imagine these conversations behind the scenes where certain writers are like man can you believe that there are so many like uh serial killer fans in our audience there are fan there are fans that believe that spike is a nice guy what can we do to prove to him that, that he is a, an evil soulless thing how what line can we cross and this is what they came up with and 
I'm doing yes. my best to be rational. I recognize with so many years behind us and so many, so much analysis that's gone into it and so much maturity, additional maturing on my part. I recognize there are legitimate storytelling reasons for this to happen. And I can see how the writers got to this point. It still makes me super uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I still find myself trying ir- irrationally as it may be. Uh, I-, I still find myself trying to rationalize how it came to this <laughs> point. And that tends to fall in the lo- fallen category of the relationship that Spike and Buffy have had up to this point um, was obviously broken and damaged. They both are broken and damaged people and their relationship has had a certain edge of darkness to it. Yeah. And it's hard for Spike who um, I feel like referring to him as soulless is coded at this point, but literally he is soulless and so he has that uh, the fact that he has any kind of moral compass is amazing but it is a limited moral compass at the moment and so it's difficult for him to see past the uh, the combative violent uh, sort of BDSM relationship that they've had up to this point yeah uh, I think yeah I think it, in the center before it gets really um, violent there's a discussion about what the nature of love is uh-huh. between them. And I think that's, you know, I, I agree with you that there probably was some effort to make, you know, to insist on the writer's part. No, Spike is evil and he needs to change, which is what we're going to get to in the next episode. But um, there's a fundamental sort of disagreement or difference in understanding between Spike and Buffy about what love is. And we've seen this in Spike from the very start. I mean, in Lover's Walk, he has this conversation with Buffy and Angel where he says, you know, love is, that love is a funny thing line comes back in the next episode. But um, he says, love is going to burn you out. Paraphrasing. I didn't look it up from uh, Lover's Walk. But uh, Buffy says, um, I have feelings for you, but it's not love. I could never trust you enough for it to be love. And Spike says, trust is for old marrieds. Great love is wild and passionate and dangerous. It burns and consumes. Um, my side note says, come back next year, Spike. <laughs> um, until there's, and Buffy's reply is, until there's nothing, nothing left. Love like that doesn't last. So they've got two different understandings of what love is. Yeah. And so he's coming, Spike's coming from basically sort of romanticism idea of love. It's like, it's all about passion and feelings. Mm-hmm. And Buffy's, uh, you know, it's not that she hasn't had passion and feelings. I just want to feel, was what she said at the end of uh, um, Once More with Feeling. But uh, ultimately, for her, love is about trust it's more about family and it's not i mean i think she would like to be able to trust she doesn't trust spike the way she trusted angel right and which is why she was so devastated when angel lost his soul and became evil yeah i mean i i don't know if i don't know how strongly i'm feeling about it at this particular second but 
you could say that the whole betrayal by Angel, the whole her first uh, experience with um, a boyfriend or whatever has kind of tainted the experience for her. Yeah. And so she, yeah. it's harder for her to trust now. But so I, uh, I've got all sorts of uh, quotes and, and sections pulled out of various books uh, regarding this scene and this episode. I want to start with yours from okay. Buffy Goes Dark, uh, your, your essay, Yates's and Travig Gyre in season six. Um, so what did I say? <laughs> uh, well, I'm going, I don't know if I should read this whole thing because this is a pretty large section, but um, so you say, uh, and this is from page uh, 176 in the physical book. Uh, you yeah. say until the entropy episode introduced the final falling apart of the season, Buffy and Spike more than any other relationship epitomized Yeats's line quote the blood dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity mm -hmm. um so you go on to talk about how uh you say you know there's nothing ceremonious or innocent about their house shattering erotic battle and smashed uh um let's see uh from the typed shouting matches on fan boards, one would be hard-pressed to decide whether Spike or Buffy should be identified as best or worst, probably both in one episode or another, depending on your point of view. Um, uh, let's see. Seeing Red was an enormously controversial episode, but within the pattern of the entropic gyres, its events might have been expected, according to Harrison quote violence which for yates was symptomatic of the end of the era end of era and the birth of an other i must have misquoted that i'm sorry no it's probably me the proofreading lacks something the end of an era the end of one era and the birth of another is probably what it says right uh becomes widespread as the inverted cone reaches it point of greatest expansion uh thus spike becomes the rough beast its hour come round at last slouching towards bethlehem to be born or rather towards Africa, uh, considered the cradle of humanity where he will have his soul returned to him. Uh, okay. Anyways. So yeah. the, <laughs> I thought what I was getting into here was the notion that, um, they've, they've alluded to Whedon loves his, his, uh, William Butler Yates and the whole slouching towards Bethlehem like that's used in both series multiple times yeah, that's true it's true um so I feel like at on some level this must have been this path for Spike must have been at least considered um I don't know how carefully they've been building towards it like I could debate how carefully mm -hmm. I think they've built uh towards this moment but some of these elements are kind of baked into the character of Spike um I particularly love one of the reasons I love Spike is that we got to see who he was as William, uh, the bloody awful poet. And I feel like that revelation instantly crystallized for me who Spike is as, as Spike and what, what created his persona of Spike. And even this, like you're talking about how Spike's notion of love is the capital R romantic. And that's because of who he was as a human. He had a short life as a human and he was driven by his emotions and his, uh, his, his capital R romanticism. 
Uh, and so when he was turned, he was deeply like invested in that particular state of mind. And that's carried over and been warped and, and exaggerated by his vampire nature. And so yeah, even at his darkest, he is a romantic. Um, yes. And that's one of the, one of the hurdles that he has to get over. And also I feel like is one of many reasons why, um, his arc is extraordinary because he's, he may be struggling with it and he certainly has moments like this, which are, uh, you know, he, he backslides considerably. Right. And one of the things he's having trouble with here is that he can't, it's part of, part of his being a vampire and maybe part of the chip. I don't know. Part of his being a vampire is that he can't truly empathize. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, he he, Buffy's action, actions to him uh, say that she feels the same way. Right. Her, so in the past, her, her actions in the past. So nothing that she says really makes an impression on Emir. Not at first. Like not at first. I I, I agree with what you're saying for but, way too long. Yes, yes, I agree with that. But uh, I I still in in. <laughs> This is what the content warning was for. Yeah. Is is the notion that I'm still looking for ways to defend Spike and not not in his actions right here, but I I would say that uh that he has found a level of empathy that should be impossible considering what his metaphysical state is. Um, yes. where it comes too late in this moment or almost too late since it doesn't like he either stops or is stopped before uh, before he really goes too far in this moment. But at that moment when he suddenly realizes, like, he does have enough empathy, he does have enough just traces of a soul, I guess, to recognize momentarily that, oh my god, I just crossed a line. And we see plenty of examples of him doing, like I said last time we talked, that uh, there are all sorts of examples of him doing stuff quote-unquote off-camera. <laughs> like when when he's not being performative that demonstrates that there is a um, you know, there is a reality in which Spike has some level of empathy and, and uh, humanity and, and quote-unquote a soul. Oh, yeah, there are certainly moments before this uh-huh. when we've seen that, and she has trusted him. She trusts him with Dawn, all mm-hmm. kinds of things. Um, she, she'll trust him with Dawn again. She tries to trust him in the very next episode. Yeah. yeah. Um, but in this scene, he's convinced that uh, if you know he can make her feel what he thinks that she really feels Mm -hmm. and um that's not how things work right he will he will not take no for an answer until she i mean it's let's see if i can count the number of times she says no (laughs) (laughs) one two three four if i count stops it's five six Seven, eight, nine, uh, ten, eleven. Uh, please don't do this. Stop. I mean, it's yeah, repeatedly. It's more than she, 
more yeah, than until once. she finally just kicks him across the room. Yeah. Um, so there, there's no means no he fails. Right. Um, here's another quote that I want to pull out, and this is from uh, Dusted, the unauthorized guide to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm-hmm. Um, which I don't have the authors right here in front of me, but I'll it, I'll include it in the show notes. Um, but they say, and I want to I want to read this out because this might be probably will be a controversial statement. But in their write up of this episode, they say. Then there's the attempted rape sequence. Throughout season six, the series has gone out of its way to demonstrate that Buffy and Spike aren't normal people. Rather, they're both screwed up, burned out monsters struggling with the leftover bits and pieces of their own humanity. Their relationship has always been a twisted, sadomasochistic parody. So to claim that Spike's actions are in any way comparable to a real rape in the real world is not only stupid, but to some degree insulting. Unquote. Wow. So... (laughs) What, how, wow. let, let's engage with let's engage with that reading interesting okay um well i can see where they're coming from i mean buffy is not a normal girl mm-hmm. and that that argument has been used to justify the level of violence in her and spike's relationship mm-hmm I don't think I'd call her a monster, though. Well, yeah. I mean, their wording is... But she is... A lot of... That was a lot of season six. It's like, she's not... She came back wrong. People keep saying that. You came back wrong. Although I think she's just depressed. Right. Well, I mean, I... Yeah. I agree with you. I think the... I think the... The whole you came back wrong like the literal interpretation of that. I think the season let that go pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we, we as viewers, and I, I think the show, the meta text of the show has, has settled on the fact that yes, she's just dealing with depression um, in, in, in multiple ways and in, in various, uh, in very, to various degrees. But so their wording is problematic, but I, I take their point and it's kind of, it, it's a much harsher and much more um, maybe dismissive or rationalizing way than I would be comfortable saying it. But I think they're kind of making the same point that I and other people have tried to make. And that is that this is, it is a horrible scene and it accomplishes what it's meant to accomplish, which is to make us make all of us super uncomfortable. Yes. But, true. But where I get uh, the reason I'm so uh, upset about this moment in the series and what comes after is that uh, it, it polarized the fan base even more. Um, yeah. Where there were certain, at least at the time, I don't know if there still are, but at least at the time, uh, the the fan base was divided down the middle, and both sides were pretty extremist. Um, with a certain segment of the fandom that was like, see, he's a rapist. He's always been a rapist. This was always going to happen. And then um, I was probably the opposite extremist. I would like to believe that I walked the line somewhere in the middle, but I was probably the extremist from the other side. But I just like to maintain the context of um, 
in in the history of their relationship spike who already struggles with his evil nature because of what he is um has been led to believe that at some time at certain points no has actually meant yes i feel like they've shown us on camera examples where, yeah that's where that true. has been yeah, the case. Right. yeah um i think another thing that polarized fans about the scene is that throughout it um spike is um in human face he never yeah takes on vamp face yeah which um makes it seem like okay this is something he sort of human ish spike is taking on even though he still has yeah the whole thing is humanized even in just the, the level of violence because like in in the excerpt from your chapter that i read where you talked about you know their their tearing down the house sex scene like usually uh, when we either see these, you know, sexy bits between Buffy and Spike, or when we see the aftermath of them, there's some attention drawn to the fact that these are superpowers. These are these are yeah. super strong, borderline invulner- invulnerable characters that are, uh, you know, exploiting their natural abilities, and uh, stuff gets destroyed. In this yeah. scene, it's a very human scene because it uh, it didn't even register on me that we were seeing Spike. Uh, in human face the whole time, but just the level of strength and violence expressed was not uh, exaggerated to superhuman levels. Like they didn't shatter yeah. the entire room and knock through walls, and she didn't pick up the bathtub and hit him over the head with it or whatever. It was all just strictly uh, mundane, horrible human violence. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, Hmm. So I want to read one more, one last quote. I have several. Okay. I want to read one last one. And this is from an interview that James Marsters gave. James Marsters gave several interviews to various yeah. sources over the years. He about how he scene. felt. He hated, he said it's one of the most difficult scenes he ever filmed. He said repeatedly that, you know, you know, I will never do a scene like that ever again. And so on and so forth. This is from an interview he gave in 2012 uh, with 411mania.com, which I've tried to find the original I followed the citation to try to find the original article. I don't think it's still out there. So this quote comes to me from Wikipedia. Um, He stated that uh, he understood the idea for this scene uh, to have come from, quote, a female writer who had a situation in her life where she and her boyfriend were breaking up. And she decided if she just made love to him one more time, that they wouldn't break up. She ended up trying to force herself on him and decided to write about that. The thing is, if you flip it and make it a man forcing himself on a woman, I believe it becomes a whole different thing. I'm not really sure it expressed what the author was intending, and on that score, it was not successful, unquote. Yeah. So, I, I'm not I've sure... Read, I've read that or something like that um, before, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure I had heard that before. Um, the only thing I was aware of from James Marsters was him talking about how, like he hated the scene like it was it wasn't fun to do it wasn't fun to watch he 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 was traumatized um he said that he was so upset about having to do the scene that it actually made uh sarah michelle geller upset and sort of worsened the experience for her because he was so anxious about it and, mm. but um i hadn't heard the bit about this w- was supposedly coming from a 
female writer and and an inversion of her own experience which yeah. is which is interesting and i i absolutely believe that that kind of stuff happens so apocryphally i believe i could believe this story but my experience of the the writers on this series i don't know it seems like this was very intentional it doesn't seem like the the attempted rape scene was meant to be something else i feel like it came across on camera exactly the way they wanted it to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Um, it's, boy, there are a lot of ways to read it. I mean, it's it, in some ways, I can't compare it, but it, it, I don't, well, I'm going to compare it. The one, the one way, one way in which it's similar to the, uh, death of Tara is that it it motivates Spike to change in a very real way in that he realizes he's he really is doing something wrong that he, he really or he's doing something wrong or he is there really is something wrong with him as he is mm -hmm. um so, in other words, what I'm trying to say is if there's any justification for the writers putting this scene in, if it's not just to say, Spike, remember Spike is evil. Right. But if it's, if it's for a character reason to say Spike needs to have a wake-up call. Yeah. Um, that's it. Because up to now, he never will accept that Buffy won't doesn't want him in some way. Mm -hmm. um, I, I feel like, uh, yeah, that, I, so that's part of what I meant when I referred to, hopefully I've matured a little bit in the 20 plus years since this first <laughs> aired, because I do feel like I'm able to recognize ways in which uh, from a plot standpoint, this was necessary and, and perhaps almost inevitable that we were going to get to this point. Emotionally, I still don't like it. Irrationally, I'm still I still hate the fact that it had to go here. But yeah, I do see, um, in a in a writerly way, how uh, a development moment like this is enticing. Um, yeah. I also feel like uh, the entire season, whatever my issues with the season may be, my the entire season has demonstrated uh the dual nature of spike because we do get some of some of my favorite spike moments in the entire series come from this season and they those tend to be the ones where he is demonstrating how like caring and tender and humane he is like yeah uh, like afterlife one of my favorite moments in the entire series <laughs> is when he first sees her walking down the stairs and then he gives her the yeah. whole every night i saved you speech and all that but then we also see examples. So, so over the course of the season, he has been both the kind, loving, empathetic William and the savage, you know, the only way to feel anything is to be super violent about it, Spike. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there, there needed to be a tipping point, a point at which he recognized his own inhumanity so much that he had to do something about it. So that'll be my last question about Spike in this context before we get to the Terra death because we're spending a lot of time on this episode. yeah yeah um, and, and, i'll 
Okay. I'll just ahead. well, I'll send you a, a reference for an article that talks about how um, Buffy doesn't want to talk about this after it happens, uh-huh. and there are um, it's like the writers don't want to talk about it either. Uh-huh. So this article talks about several ways in which after this episode, um, there's sort of a silencing of this incident. That's, that is interesting. I absolutely want to see the article and uh, I'll include it in the show notes. So our listeners can check that out as well. But I, I just want to ask you, um, cause I interpret her, her not wanting to talk about it. I thought that that was a, a human reaction. And I thought that was in, I, that was calling out the fact that a lot of, you know, rape survivors and, and uh, abuse victims are uncomfortable or embarrassed by the whole thing and don't, aren't, don't want to talk to people about it. Yes. I thought that too. Um, and I think that's reasonable, but she continues to not want to discuss it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that maybe this article seems to think that it's a way to sort of rehabilitate Spike. Okay. Just by sort of let's brush it under the rug a little bit because the fans don't like it. (laughs) Well, so, so yeah, I, like I said, I want to read it because it's, it would be interesting to me if someone was, was pitching the premise that uh, the writer's, felt guilty for having done that and maybe they yeah. were like that was a line we shouldn't have crossed let's just pretend it didn't happen that's interesting but um this leads to sort of the the last question about spike here is the obviously the show is doing an intentional misdirect where they want certain aspects of the fan base mo- probably the larger segment of the fan base to assume that what's going on is spike is going to get this damn chip taken out of his head right once and for all so he can give buffy what she deserves so he can get back to the person he was which is all it's all veiled coded language but on camera on this rewatch i was surprised at how heavily it really does seem to lead toward you know lean into the i'm going to get the chip out Mm -hmm. um because over the years, the interpretation I feel like has swung far more. And the writers even, uh, Jane Espenson has come out directly and said that the intent was he was always going to get his soul. But how do you read that? Well, it's, you know, if you know what's happening, it could be ambiguous. But he clearly says, um, well, okay, the only thing is not clear is when he says to Clem it's the chip it won't let me be a monster and I can't be a man yeah, great line so that suggests to me that he does want he would like to be a man mm-hmm. possibly so to be a man he has to have a soul right so that is one option um, but uh, what he finally says to the demon and then it's in the next episode um is you know make me what i was so that's ambiguous is what he was a vampire without a chip or is what he was a person with a soul right 
Okay, you're right. The the we can get into that in the next episode. Um, yeah. So let's talk about the the end of this one. Yeah. So we have one more encounter with the nerds where Buffy shows Warren up. I, I have to say though, Andrew taking off and bumping into the roof <laughs> is a classic. That was great. Just that was great, great thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Um, that's right before Spike takes off in his motorcycle. That's also where we get the the first. I mean, it's again kind of like me, uh, way too little and way too late. Um, but Jonathan <laughs> oh, yeah. finally Jonathan. makes his choice uh, yeah. and jumps in there to tell Buffy how to defeat Warren. Um, I don't. We don't need to say any more about the fact that Warren's yeah, power yeah, is, yeah. is two balls in a sack. <laughs> so I mean. Bad. Yeah, we we get yeah, it. Yeah, we yeah. get it. Um but also it's so weird that their master plan starts off with him. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's not weird. It is indicative of what kind of uh just terrible person um what a, what a man baby that Warren really is. Is he gets quote unquote ultimate power uh and what does he do? He goes and hits on girls, he beats up the bullies that bullied him and he robs an he robs a uh an amusement park? Like that's your big move? Yeah, I mean it's I guess it's just where the armored truck was, but yeah, it yeah. could be anything. Anyways. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, that uh that defeat for Warren is coded as being particularly embarrassing because of how it was achieved mm. and where his power resided, uh, which pushes him to um, do a very human thing. So the the show's already focused, and it's about to focus even more on the notion of there's a difference between supernatural death and natural death. There's a, There's a clear divide between the violence committed with by and for supernatural forces and those that just plain regular humans commit. Yeah. Um, and so Warren's final act of villainy is a very mundane, very human thing. He just goes and gets a gun. Yeah. This is one of the few times that a gun is used in Buffy and it's so obviously a phallic symbol. Mm -hmm. Well, particularly particularly by, after the by the next episode it's clearly yeah yeah um yeah so so this this okay yeah so i had actually forgotten that buffy got shot i, I totally I, know. I had totally forgotten that he successfully shoots buffy all i remembered about this moment was that he shoots wildly uh and hits Tara. And that the scene is masterfully done, even if it is needlessly cruel. Yeah. Um, and it's... So the death of uh, of Joyce gets a lot of praise for how uh, natural it was, for how, like, realistically it was portrayed. Like, she doesn't... Joyce doesn't get a final right. soliloquy. I mean, she just she just dies. And She's... we we as the audience just, like... Buffy and her her friends have to deal with the unresolved emotions of that. It's just a death that happens, and we don't even see Joyce die. She's right. just Buffy just comes home, then she's dead. And so Tara's final words here are: I mean, you could read if you're if you're reaching, you could read final. You you know you could read importance into the fact that 
even with her dying breath, Tara is worried about others. Like her, her, oh, her thought is for other people. But in reality, and that's super sweet, and I'm fine with that reading, and I probably have it myself on a, to a certain level, but I also just appreciate the fact, in as much as I could ever appreciate that they killed off Terra, I appreciate the fact that it is a, an unresolved, it's not a big moment. I mean, it's just, it's yeah. an accident that happens and is done, and there's nothing any of us can do about it, and it doesn't have any higher meaning, or does it? Because there's... Yeah. We can talk about if there is a or meta meta thing to discuss here or not well i think we have to move on to the next episode okay to discuss all the ins and outs of that okay um but yeah it's it's a at the end of this episode it appears to be a horrifying accident um i mean even there we probably have to can go into more details um, but yeah, it's, it is horrifying because it's an accident <sighs> because it's so sudden because it comes out of nowhere. Well, not out of nowhere, but to, to Willow and Tara, it comes out of nowhere because they don't know what's going on with Warren. They've been living in their own little romantic cocoon. Yeah. For these past few, these past couple episodes, um, they've been kind of out of like they've sort of been into their own side did, story yeah they did a little research to right. help buffy but they did a lot of it in bed i mean that's right yeah they in large part it's just been the two of them locked up in the bedroom together helping you know a little bit but mostly it's about them and it doesn't feel like they're attached to the larger goings-on yeah and so yeah that makes you know the moment that got me even even the actual death of Tara like it was powerful that wasn't what emotionally moved me it was right before that when she notices that Xander's outside when she just acknowledges oh there is like life is going on outside this window right I don't know that's when I was like oh god here it comes yeah um so it's it's fascinating to me that um over the years there was an outraged segment of fandom so much outrage uh regarding willow and tara's romantic relationship and uh oh well yeah there was some of that yeah yeah so going back to episode uh 419 new moon rising which is when the romantic relationship between willow and tara was made explicit Uh um that there was so much outrage fan response that uh following that episode uh joss whedon got on one of the the posting boards, I guess. Um, I was not online with the community at this point, but he went on to what Tara's not going to disappear, unquote. Basically meaning that the haters had just better get used to it because this isn't going anywhere. And here we are precisely two seasons later at 619. Uh, and the show apparently seems to give in to the whole burying your gaze trope. And it does, in fact, bid farewell to Tara as she does, in fact, disappear. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's hard to, I mean, if I recall, a lot of that outrage, I mean, some of the outrage was because of Willow being taken up a gay relationship, but a lot of it was just because people didn't want to see Oz leave. Yeah, yeah, that's true. 
And that was my initial response as well back then. I was like, damn it, Oz is one of my favorite characters. Don't do this. And I wasn't super fond of Tara at that point. but <laughs> Yeah, it took a while to, to adjust. Yeah. But, um, yeah, you're right. But here's, here it is, two seasons later, she's gone. But... Did, you, did you remember uh, that this episode leaked online a week early? I didn't remember that. No, I have no memory of this. I, I was not aware that this was a thing that happened. And so I have no memory of whether or not the whole, the larger details of this were spoiled, like the bathroom scene or the death of Tara. I don't remember if, hmm. um, it, it had leaked online. So some of the fan base had seen it, that stuff, but I don't remember if this stuff was widely reported before the episode officially aired. I don't know. Certainly not to me because it didn't. I I went in fresh. I did not notice any of those spoilers if they existed. But I just I um, had some access to spoilers at that time, but I don't remember whether I heard about this one. Okay. Um, but I don't remember now. Um, but oh. All right. Well, do you want to move on to the next episode? I feel like we're torturing. Yeah, I think we. I think we should because this is where we really. I think it's not just the death of Tara that is that outraged people, but also Willow's reaction. The aftermath. Because yeah. it's not just the, the there's the burying your gaze trope, but there's also something called the dead evil lesbian cliche, oh. which is that um, this is one thing that outraged people, which is that the, it, there's a pair of lovers. One is dies or is killed and the other one goes insane. Right. So that is the other thing that people reacted against. And and that, uh, forgive me, I'm, I, I'm familiar with the burying your gaze trope. I wasn't, I'm not familiar if the notion of this being a particularly uh, gay or lesbian trope is a thing. Is it? Like, is there a specific, oh, a gay or a lesbian, like a, a, a homosexual couple uh, deals with yes. loss in this particular way? Yes. Okay. Um it's you could look it up on TV tropes, I guess. But um, I've I've got an article from Slayage, two thousand two, I think. Um, was that the first? That was the first one, wasn't it? No, it was. It's from the uh, the journal, not oh the, the journal, uh, not the not the conference. not the conference. Gotcha. Yeah, okay. Um, that talks about this, and now I've just lost it again. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, apparently, according to this article, that cliche or that trope goes back to one of the very first novels about a lesbian couple called The Well of Loneliness. Okay. Huh. Um, yeah. Um, oh, here it is. 1928. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I, was, uh, uh, I wasn't familiar with that. Yeah. Um, so, but it's been, it had been repeated before this. So, yeah. So this is one, I mean, I read that one of the articles that talked about this and said, this is just, um, this was bad. <laughs> and so people thought, you know, a lot of fans thought, why are you doing this? It's, it's a cliche. Mm -hmm. um, the writers said, that's, you know, whether we were aware of that or not, we did this for the development of Willow's character. 
we thought this was the only um, motivation that could push her to become the big, big bad mm-hmm. of the season. Is that justified or not? Uh, you know, people will debate. So, again, there's two articles in our book <laughs> to, to, to yeah. debate this on both sides. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And so, yeah, this article I'm looking at from 2002 um, complains that no scholars have written about this. Um, we actually, it took us from the very first Buffy um, conference, which took place a little later in 2002 until 2009 when we were able to publish the book to get these essays into publication. But yes, people were writing about it. We just couldn't publish it. So yeah, it was in the scholarship. It's Um, not in print. All right. Well, yeah, I was... uh... At, le- at least sitting here now, I don't remember being aware of that. I I remember the outrage. So I remember two levels of outrage. And the first first one, obviously, that I was aware of taking place, at least, was the whole, how dare you? <laughs> like, how, how yeah. dare you uh, take another happy relationship from us? How dare you kill Tara? And how dare you put Willow through this level of torture and all that? But, you know, uh, over the years, I feel like the outrage against it has settled more on the whole barrier gaze trope which mm-hmm. um i mean yeah and something very similar happened not too long ago on um the 100 i don't know if you watched that show um i i stopped watching it but i was aware of when that happened yeah 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 it's a very similar situation happened same outrage same i'm not saying they weren't justified it's just like oh but my feeling at that point was like, did the writers learn nothing or, or did the fans learn nothing? I don't know. So this is, I don't necessarily want us to settle with, I'm going to do this and then we can focus directly on the episode, but because I don't want us necessarily to go off on a tangent about Joss Whedon himself and what kind of person Joss Whedon is. But uh, another thing that I pulled out of that dusted uh, book that I referenced earlier Uh, They say that Whedon, who's always considered himself a staunch supporter of gay rights, was horrified at the implication that he killed Tara because of her sexual orientation. Two weeks after Tara's on-screen death, he wrote uh, to the Buffy the Vampire Slayer posting board, quote, the idea that I couldn't kill Tara because she was gay gay is as offensive to me as the idea that I did kill her because she was gay. Willow's story was not about being gay. It was about weakness, addiction, loss, the way life hits you at the right hits you in the gut right when you think you're back on your feet. Eventually this story will end for all of them. Tara's ended sooner, unquote. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how, how, how do you feel about that sentiment? <sighs> I have to say that I have been sympathetic to that statement. I, I, <laughs> so am I. So am I. At the same time, you know, I, I'm the world, I'm a world-class waffler at the same time, (laughs) at the same time, I am sympathetic to those who, um, were deeply invested in a a couple and characters that to some extent, greater or lesser extent represented their experience 
Yeah. And did not want to see that destroyed on screen. <sighs> so I, I, I wasn't thinking of it in these terms, but I guess one reason why I feel like I identify with Spike so much is um, I like to imagine myself as being very empathetic or not, not even imagine. I will, I will straight up own the fact that I am very empathetic and sympathetic. And I, I feel for other people and for characters and stuff deeply like i am that to me seems like my driving force that's that's mm-hmm. my driving impulse that is my core narrative to put it in westworld terms uh but i'm also a mostly a mostly uh heterosexual cis white male in america uh, yeah. who's learning to recognize his own damn privilege and mm-hmm. so even though I always feel like I have the best of intentions, I'm, I'm learning to recognize the fact that my best intentions don't always mean much, uh, in situations like this. I do not have the experience of, uh, gay and lesbian fans of the Willow Terror relationship. And so perhaps my read of it is different than theirs. And that's totally valid. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I tend Typically, I tend to lean more towards the Whedon's assertion that, you know, the suggestion, the idea that I couldn't kill Tara because she was gay is as offensive to me as the idea that I did kill her because she was gay. Yeah. That's kind of always my first impulse. Um, But that is it's that is difficult to say because I'm a white male in America and I don't, I don't always have to deal with the emotional repercussions of stuff like this, the way that other people do. Hmm. So yeah, it's, that's why this stuff is so complicated because, you know, in a, in a plot development sense, a lot of this uh, might be necessary and, and uh, whatever, but I, I can also see how it's super problematic when, you know, you feel like you have very, very limited representation in fiction and right. it, it starts to seem like every example of your representation is taken away from you. And that can't be a coincidence. And, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. This article that I'm looking at, um, and I guess I should give the title. <laughs> You're just going to send all sorts of links. Sorry. To uh, this is Judith L. Tabron. Girl on Girl Politics, Willow slash Tara, and New Approaches to Media Fandom. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you could give the full information in your notes. Um, one thing that she points out, which I think is, uh, you know, a valid point, is that um, although he says, although Whedon says, his show is a, a show where people die and, you know, Willow, Tara had to die because that was the thing. But she says, Tebron says, perhaps Whedon didn't notice that Tara was the only extended significant other he has ever killed on any of his shows. Now, this is in 2002. <laughs> um, yeah, just wait. Just wait. Just wait. Um, but, yeah, she gives a pretty so good wait, analysis. So wait, what is... What is so what is the implication of that? She's saying that Tara is the the 
significant other that lasted the longest before being killed or written yeah. off? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, that might still stand. I'm trying to think uh, if there's, because to me and to a lot of people, that is a Joss Whedon trope. That is a Whedon cliche. He kills or tortures or maims or dismisses uh, any uh, happy couple in any of his shows. But it might, I don't know, maybe Tara still is the longest lasting relationship. I don't know if that's true. Um, yeah, I, well, the, to her analysis, it is. Um, it, if it's not the longest, it's the most gory. Oh, the the way it analysis. ends. You mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are people who leave, but they're not dead. Like Oz, he leaves, but he's not dead. Right. Um, I I think adding to the horror of this episode of. Uh, I forgot what it's called. Villains. <laughs> Adding to the horror Villains. of this uh, and the, the death of Tara is the way she's discovered. So uh, so Tara, Willow loses it. Willow goes all, or at least the early stages of, of Dark Phoenix here. Yeah. Um, and and leaves Tara's body. I mean, she, yeah. she we do get the scene of her calling on Osiris and trying to get her resurrected. And that's where mm-hmm. the sort of metaphysical rules are reestablished for us viewers that um, no, she died. This is just like Joyce. She died a natural death. There's nothing that you can do supernaturally to affect that. Again, the rules of Buffy are fast and loose and they change from episode to episode, but they've they've stuck to that one fairly well. Right. Um, I mean, just a, it feels like just a few episodes ago we had someone talk about how magic magic and medicine don't mix mm-hmm. uh, and yet willow goes out and pulls a bullet out of buffy's chest and essentially brings her back to life again of course it's black magic so uh, okay dark magic. yes true but um at any rate so that happens but after that she just leaves and tara's body just stays up there for the rest of the episode practically with nobody finding her and the additional horror is that dawn is the one that finds her and then just sits with her yeah, all horrible. day. Horrible. Yeah. So again, uh, I have emotional responses to Dawn and the fact when Buffy and Xander come home and, and Dawn is cowering in the corner, basically uh, traumatized by having s- discovered and sitting with Tara's body all day. I mean, yeah. that was super emotional. It was. It was really one of the saddest scenes. I don't know if this is true for everybody, but for me, it might be the moment when sort of the emotion of Tara's death hit because mm-hmm. we haven't really had a chance to sit with it up till now. It's been, right. we're watching, we're watching Willow go off the deep end over it, but we haven't really had a moment to emotionally process. Oh yeah. Tara's gone. Yeah. Until right now. I agree. <sighs> um, so speaking of Dark Phoenix or Dark Willow or whatever, the scene of her uh, drawing power from the Dark Arts books with mm-hmm. the text just scrolling over her skin. I mean, that is a that is one of it's the most that's one of the most memorable visual effects for me that the show does. Yeah. It is. It's very impressive. And it was ripped off recently. Uh-oh. In the in another WB show that's on right now called Legacies. Oh, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> Interesting. 
Well, we're I 20, we're 20 years out. We're 20 years out. I guess these things go in cycles or something. I, I guess. <laughs> Maybe they thought everyone was dead now. Who couldn't possibly remember? They were probably like, nobody reads books anymore. Books are going to be super weird to everybody. Yeah. Well, it wasn't books. It was some, but it was some kind of dark magic thing that a character absorbed, oh, okay. turned all dark and veiny. Gotcha. And I said, oh my gosh, they're going to do the Dark Willow storyline again. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, where do we go from here? What else happened okay. in this episode? Oh, man. Um, so, um, so Warren, Warren's misogyny and, uh, coupled with his insignificance is re-emphasized here, where he goes to boast about killing the Slayer. Oh, yeah. And in the demon bar, and they're all like, Oh, we don't even know who you are. Yeah. Racka doesn't know who he is. That's great. Oh yeah. That <laughs> reminds me a band or something. That reminds me. I've always liked the actor Jeff Kober. But yeah. probably because I'm not a fan of the particular storyline he was involved in. I hate the character of Rack. But <laughs> Oh, I, that's terrible. <laughs> but um I liked him in this episode. I liked him in this scene. I don't know. He was just different. He was just far enough removed from the crack dealer rack. Um yeah, and and I liked his interactions with Warren. I liked the way he talked to him, and the I, I don't know. It was like finally I can enjoy Jeff Kober in this show. Yeah, he he did well here. Is just like okay, I'm your I'm your evil magic right wizard guy here, so yeah. it was fine. Um, uh, but yeah, the bar scene with uh with Warren being put in his place. Mm-hmm. I mean. He's just Warren is just an idiot. Warren, yeah, Warren is just straight up dumb. How did he think that was going to play? I like the fact that the vampire. Um, well, first of all, I love the line. This isn't the evil laugh of victory, is it? <laughs> that is a great line. <laughs> but I like that the vampire yeah. just casually says, "I was going to eat you during the commercial break, but now I think it might be better to just sit back and watch what happens." Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um. It's. It was interesting to me that after that Willow does uh, save Buffy. I mean, I thought she was just, you know, that her first thing would be revenge, but uh-huh. she does save Buffy. So there's still a little bit of Willow in there. Yeah, another another thing, another uh, nuance that I had forgotten about this episode. I, I remembered it as she absorbs the dark magic and then immediately just goes full Dark Willow and hunts down Warren. I'd forgotten how kind of casually she builds up to it. And the fact that she does go to the hospital, hospital she does save Buffy. And that's super sweet and everything. And you could read that as, oh, she's still Willow. She still cares about her friend. But you could also read it as this is her. She needs the scoop. She she feels like Warren's the bad guy. Her friends will help her. I need to go yeah. get the Scooby gang so we can go after Warren. Oh, Buffy's got that pesky bullet in her chest. Let me deal with that. <laughs> right. I, there's probably pragmatics involved. Yeah. Um, and the robot Warren on the bus is a great touch. It, yeah. So Warren. I'm interested um, what essence she was getting from the robot, but who knows? Who knows what the rules know. of, uh, of robotics are on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So, some trick Warren got from rack, no doubt. Uh, um, probably, probably good point. 
What? Oh, here, here's what struck me though. Throughout this, nobody asks about Tara. Yes, I. So I tried uncharacteristically. I tried to cut Xander some slack, but it it's it's worth mentioning that when the uh, EMTs arrive to take Buffy away, Willow finally comes out of the house and she's coated in blood. Uh, yeah. And she comes out alone without Tara and Xander. I mean, his response is, are you okay? And I guess that's his reaction to seeing her covered in blood, but he doesn't ask about Tara. Uh, Willow wanders off clearly in a daze or whatever. And, and I don't know. I tried to cut him some slack and say, he's super worried about Buffy. He knows Buffy's just been shot. It doesn't occur to him that Tara might've been shot, but even so there's Willow covered in blood wandering off and Xander just kind of lets it go. Right. And all he asked is what's with the makeover of the damned, which is a great line, but yeah, yeah. you know, it just doesn't, why doesn't anybody ask about Tara? That this is kind of a writing fail, but um, she does finally tell them about Tara. I'm glad, I'm glad that that scene played out the way it did because I didn't remember uh, either Buffy or Xander showing much emotion over Tara's death. Um, and you could argue that they still don't. I mean, there's a lot going on and they're, but anyways, when she finally says Tara's dead or whatever, uh, Buffy particularly has a good emotional response. I'd forgotten how, how obvious, yeah. uh, Sarah Michelle, Ge Sarah Michelle Geller made it that, uh, Buffy was upset over that. So I liked that. Yes. I appreciate mm -hmm. that. Could have been more, but I appreciated it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's more obvious when they return to the house. Yeah. And find the scene we discussed of Dawn. Yeah. Huddled with the body of Tara, which is just tragic. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, Dawn's reaction, too, is that. Uh, she approves dawn approves of willow killing oh Warren. yeah 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 we can talk about that um this discussion of whether you know it's okay to kill humans this is something i know you've discussed on the show before uh-huh uh, um <laughs> we, i mean we, we can talk about it how do you feel about it um i do you know has buffy killed humans before i would say not only in self-defense, I would say. She, um, she has killed. He, hang on, let me let me quickly refer <laughs> to. I think it's dusted. I think it's that book that I've suddenly made very controversial by <laughs> by reading that certain quote. But uh, yeah, so uh, one of the things dusted, the unauthorized guide to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, does in its breakdown of each episode, it includes a section called "The Slayer's Total Kill Count So Far." And as of seeing red, uh, the kill count so far, 113 vampires, 60 demons, one human. And I, if memory serves, that one human came from, and I, the name of the episode is going out of my head, but it's when the, uh, the knights of whatever they were, yeah. the knights who say knee, were, cha right. were, were chasing them. And uh, she... I think the argument could be made that she killed several of them because, like, she was flinging them off of the bus as they were racing down the street or whatever. But on camera, I think we saw her kill one of them. Okay, I'm going to say that's self-defense. Okay. 
I mean, you, yeah, I, I, I need to revisit and see how we talked about it on our discussion of that episode. But, um, yeah. Anyways, they, they were trying to kill her or they were trying to kill Dawn. They were, yeah. They were trying to get to Dawn, but I, if there's a va some piece of my brain is, is telling me that in our, in, in the discussion I had about that episode, there was something about that kill. Like when it happened, it wasn't ne strictly necessary. I don't remember. I genuinely don't remember. That's but, possible. But the larger metaphorical question or the, the moralistic question here is within the context of Buffy, the vampire slayer, why do they value human life above all? all else <laughs> well and i think buffy's justification here is that the human world has its own rules yeah this is the best the show has ever done i think yeah and as a slayer she's supposed to deal with demons and vampires and supernatural things not with humans and um xander says well the human rules don't always work mm-hmm and her reply is, well, we can't control the universe. If we were supposed to control the universe, uh, then the magic wouldn't change Willow the way it does, which is an interesting point. Um, yeah, this is the best the show in general and the character of Buffy in particular, I feel like, ever comes on screen to giving me a rationale for this moral stance that I can mm -hmm. that I can buy into. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, like you said, over the course of this podcast, I and some of my guests have struggled a little bit with the idea of um, why is it impossible for you to kill a human? And why is killing a human being the like the absolute end all be all sin that can never be redeemed or whatever? Right. But, uh, yeah. So I I, I, as cynical as I am, I appreciated that scene, actually. I think it's interesting that they have Buffy say here that Willow is um, because Willow wants to control the universe essentially, mm -hmm. which is what she's been struggling with. I mean, it's bad. I can agree that the um, magic addiction metaphor didn't, wasn't great this, this season, but uh, for me, what I saw it as was a, uh, a desire for control an addiction to control right. for Willow. Yeah. She wanted to be able to control things and power. Um, which I guess drugs are for some people. Um, and that's this is so, the ultimate thing that Willow can't control. She can't bring Tara back. That is as close. So again, as close as, um, I will say that is as close as anyone has ever come to making for me personally the magic as an addiction metaphor interesting because i would argue you're you're 100 you're 100 right with the whole willows thing is not about ruling or you know changing the universe or whatever it's about control i get that that makes total sense and that's what's gotten her into trouble she wants to control the world around her and the reactions of her friends and the yeah. memories the memories of her lover and all that stuff yeah the, what's fascinating about it is typically uh, you tend to think of drugs, particularly in fictional storytelling, drugs serve the purpose of a loss of control. <laughs> like like you take characters get stoned or they get addicted to drugs because it allows them to give up their control and just, I don't know. So Well, either to give up their control or to control emotions that they don't want to feel. 
I don't want to feel sad, so I'm going to drink or I'm going to take heroin or something like that. Yeah, I fair, don't. Fair. So it is a, you know, it can be a kind of control either ways. But yeah, for Willow here, I really think it's, um, and I have to acknowledge that I don't take drugs, so I don't really know anything <laughs> about that. Um, but Willow. For Willow, I think it's really about control. And now she's willing to go all the way. She's really to become the dark magics in order to try to control the forces that have hurt her and her lover. And what Buffy says is those forces want to hurt Willow, Mm -hmm. which is true. And they want to hurt all of us, which is true. So... Willow thinks she can control that. That's always been like her weak spot is that she always thinks she can do more than she really can. Mm-hmm. So far she's succeeded. I will, ab- I will absolutely be drawing us back around to this line of thinking when we get to the end of the series, <laughs> when we come okay. to the end of season seven, it, it may, it will probably come up before then, but I, I just know, as we're talking about this right now, I'm thinking of how stuff goes down at the end of season seven. Oh yeah. And, uh, it, it, to me, feels like worth (laughs) discussing, but that's for a later discussion. Um, I want to ask about the, and, and and maybe this isn't really relevant until we get to the last two episodes of this season. Maybe it's too early to have this conversation, but I was thinking that, um, in oh lord what was the episode was it smashed hang on really yeah all right so in in uh, episode 609 smashed we saw a totally normal power level willow um accompanied by amy just going nuts in the bronze and doing mm-hmm. all kinds of ridiculous overpowered magic stuff like she altered reality she shape-shifted uh the patrons like she turned people into pigs and did she like turn somebody into a cloud of bubbles or butterflies like she did ridiculous powerful stuff yeah and that was just normal willow that was even before rack got involved that was just willow on a lark she did wear herself out doing that but yeah she did yeah but uh, which is, I guess, which is why she had to go to rack. But um, here we have what is theoretically a now supercharged Dark Phoenix level uh, Willow Rosenberg, um, who don't get me wrong, she's scary. But the most imaginative thing we see her do with her magic is Flay Warren uh, when she's other than that, like pretty much all we see her do is she avoids some traps. I mean, the freezing, that explosion thing was pretty cool. Um, but, um, well, okay. I think the difference is that this magic, I mean, we're going to see her do more things. She right. stopped a bus. That, yeah, that's true. And I, I, mean, I this I, magic <laughs> is fueled by rage though, is what Rack says and what you see. Uh, huh. Instead, fueled instead by rage of, and revenge. Instead of boredom, although she does get that line in a minute. Well, instead of boredom and um, what amusement? Yeah. Lightheartedness. I mean, all the things she did in the bronze were kind of fun. I mean, they were right. wrong because nobody yet gave her permission, and 
um, she was interfering with other people, but they were they were cute in a way. Does that make sense? I mean, they it were. Do, it does. But... They were entertaining. They weren't. They weren't uh, hurting anybody. Right. She she flings her friends across and Anya and Will and Buffy and Xander with this purple lightning power that she's got. She hurts people. Yeah. But I guess, I guess my point and it's, you know, maybe I'm belaboring the point, but I was just saying that uh, we've seen Willow long before she like sucked up all the evil powers of these dark art arts books and, and supposedly got like super powerful. We saw her do some pretty overpowered stuff. Like she just casually altered the nature of reality around her in that episode. I hear, and here she's just throwing purple lightning and tying Warren up with tree branches. Yeah. And, and like I said, in the next two episodes, I don't remember how crazy she gets, but I feel like, uh, if this this dark willow were to employ the level of creativity that she did when she was hanging out with Amy, she actually really would be Dark Phoenix from the comics, who did all sorts of terribly imaginative, evil, powerful things. Yeah. But well, and she's she's getting there. Okay. All right. <laughs> but I, your point, I take your point though. Um, we we haven't seen the worst of it but i think what the difference is that we're seeing though is in in the kind of intent and emotion that's behind it right so far right i mean she does kind of go all terminator in this episode like uh last time you and i talked and uh, i was like um you know it was cool to see buffy go all serial killer or, or uh or whatever like uh horror show killer when she was casually she was doing the slow stalk of dawn oh, through the yeah. house yeah um that was super cool and chilling and uh, t- uh willow i almost said tara willow kind of goes terminator here where she's she's yeah. definitely in a hurry to find warren but she's also got that very casual this is what i'm gonna do like he can't oh, yeah. he cannot get away i'm going to find him especially when she actually does track him down and she's just walking behind him as she, as he's racing through the woods she's just walking behind him and she always manages to catch up to him mm-hmm. yeah and she's uh totally um vamp willow level evil here when she plays him and then she's tired of that board now yes yeah, that yeah that's the moment right there so that's before the moment. leading up to that moment so she can she catches up to him and she i don't know how to have this conversation um she okay so oh do we want to talk about spike in africa or do we already talk about that yeah okay you know this is a good this is a good time to bring that up uh and actually leading into that i just want to say once again if i haven't been clear about this before clem is precious clem is the cutest he is i've been dying to watch the wedding planner (laughs) (laughs) he's he's just so adorable i love him so much um offering her the best seat in the house and uh, yeah i've got bugles gosh i love clem so so much uh, yeah he's great yeah okay so spike in africa yeah um so uh, the cave the cave that he goes into uh first of all he got to africa pretty quick didn't he yeah that was amazing i don't know how he did that but I, uh, he found a whatever. teleporter or something i don't know yeah. but uh so but the cave uh the the sort of uh cave paintings 
Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't notice this so much. I mean, I, there there was one figure drawing of someone with their mouth stitched up. Oh, I didn't notice that. Um, but I've seen other people say that one of the cave paintings or drawings or whatever uh, showed someone being flayed alive. I, I didn't notice that. I was looking for it and didn't see that. I need um, to go back and watch this again. But I did see uh, there was, there was a it. face with a clearly stitched up mouth. So that seems too intentional to not have been yeah intentional i guess but yeah so this this is what we were t- starting to talk about in the last episode where uh spike seems ambiguous in what he's asking for and the demon might be putting his own spin on things yeah the demon says uh you want to return to your former self yeah so is that pre-chip or pre-vampire um, the thing is, I can't. We don't get to see them in this episode, but I can't remember what tests he has to go through. I, no, he goes we through. We don't see them. Oh, we never see them. I don't know if we ever see them. Oh, yeah, we do see some of them okay. in the, in the either next in the next two episodes or in, in season, season seven. Okay, I can't remember now. Yeah, we okay. don't see them here, but um, no. It, it'll be interesting if we do get to see them or see get hints about what these tests are it'll be interesting to try and square whatever those are with what he's actually being tested for like i, yeah. I don't remember but let's say that one of the tests is he has to go out and skin a human or he has to go pull someone's spine out of their body or something like that yeah. my question would be how is that a test for for actually anything how does that test whether he deserves to have his chip taken out well i guess that i guess it would test that um but how is that a test for him deserving to get his human soul back i don't know but again spike's response is ambiguous when he says when i win bitch is going to see a change and just his way of saying that is very menacing right yeah so or very determined i don't know I mean, that's how I've always remembered it is very determined. I, I like I've bought into, I don't know, maybe the lie that we've told ourselves <laughs> that he's all that he always meant to go get his soul. Um, that is what I believe. But I, I, I was surprised rewatching it at how menacing it came across. on Yeah. Camera. But, um, OK, so S- Spike and Willow's <laughs> not to go back to the bathroom scene, but. Uh, in these two episodes, both characters speak in terms of sort of making the targets of their feelings, whatever their feelings are, um, feel things. Spike, oh, yeah. Spike was all about, uh, I'll make you feel it again. Or, you know, like that's what he was saying as he was assaulting Buffy. And Willow here is very, very into the notion of making uh, Warren feel what he did to uh, Tara. Mm-hmm. Um, and that and Katrina and Katrina and that sort of language. Um, I, I feel like that kind of is very much in line with like abusive talk and behavior and the, the notions of uh, control and power and domination. Um, yeah. But this is the penetration scene <laughs> that we can. Oh gosh. Yes. <laughs> Um, it's so fascinating on a show that in some sense has always been about penetration. Like, yeah. Like 
that's what Buffy does is she penetrates many yeah she stakes vampires um however in those instances it's usually pretty clean like they dust and then just disappear and there's no right mess left behind um here willow penetrates warren's body and she does it slowly and maliciously and with intent and she talks about making him feel it and um yeah it's not it's not clean or pretty no uh, and the sewing up his mouth is mm-hmm. like even though it's done by magic it's it's grotesque and horrifying yeah uh yeah um i don't i don't want to <laughs> i just in my in my notes i wrote this so please forgive me it was the height height of the moment it was the emotions of the moment that made me write this but i was like uh I was like, I do want to point out that Willow followed through with the penetrative assault, whereas Spike either stopped or was stopped in time to realize what he was doing and consider its moral implications. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so from that point of view, you know, Spike still has enough what humanity, accessible humanity in him to realize, to be, that he can be made to realize what, what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Willow there's no stopping willow yet yeah i guess the parallel here would be that spike is gradually learning how to become human again whereas willow is gradually losing her humanity she's yeah she's on the way to rejecting it well on the way also uh warren doesn't have enough what humanity (laughs) enough goodness in him to get her attention i mean all of his Right. Uh, apologies are hollow. They're all self-centered. I mean, he starts off very, very defiant and, and yeah. refuses. And and he, even when she brings up Katrina, um, he doesn't accept he's it. He's like, uh, you know, the bitch deserved it or whatever it was. He yeah. said. Like he's, he's very clearly not apologetic. And so when he finally does start apologizing, um, it's clearly not sincere. It's clearly just a preservation tactic. Right. It's, I don't know if you've ever read the uh, Flannery O'Connor story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. No. Um, in that, there's a very, very self-centered character who is confronted by a serial killer and uh, tries to save herself by saying, you're you're not a bad person. I know you're a good man. <laughs> <laughs> He's not a good man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. She's... And uh, when Warren says here, you're not a bad person. Oh yeah, lose yeah, all yeah. your friends. Like, no, that's not the way to appeal to Willow at this point. So, is that a direct it's... call out to that that book? I I doubt it, but uh, I couldn't. That parallel just stri- happened to strike me. Okay, so. okay. I didn't know. I think if it's the, just a. I didn't know if the language was actually that specifically similar. But... Um, no, I don't think so. Okay. I think it's just a um, a parallel, not a not a call out or okay. an allusion. Um, okay, so do you? I, I I always ask people if they remember their initial reaction to things because I usually don't. What was your? Do you remember your initial response to the scene when she's like bored now and then skins him alive? Oh, just uh, that was one of the most violent things I had seen on the show. I mean, I could not believe they did that. I I, I was just. Oh. I I could hardly watch that. I was, I still can hardly watch it. 
I don't like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, bored now. I mean, that was that was the signal that this is not our willow right. at all. And it it uh, almost as shocking as just the visual of her doing that in the first place. Which, by the way, that was a it was a pretty good special effect. I yeah. I read that they that the effects team actually initially tried to do that as a practical effect, <gasps> where they where they built I guess like an upper portion of of Warren, uh-huh. and then physically ripped the skin off of it. I don't know how what the results of that were. I don't know if it was laughably bad or if it was just so graphic that they decided to do uh, oh, computer man. effects, but. At any rate, the visual effects they ultimately went with were pretty shocking and good. Well, and then when she confronted, when her friends try to confront her, her next phase, like, this is how little this means to me. Poof. She just. uh, Burns him. Burns burns him to nothing. Yeah. So it's like, this means nothing to me. Yeah. So the board now line is, is almost the real shock in this because yeah. ob- it's an yeah. obvious callback to vamp willow. That's like, mm-hmm. which I feel like that line ever since then has been so almost kind of a laughable. Line. It's like, it's almost cute. Like we, we joke about vamp willow mm-hmm. and uh, the line board now is, is like almost precious. It's almost jokey. And here yeah. it is. And we're seeing the, the our, our real willow, give in to that sentiment and it's uh horrifying and it's and almost the real shock here not just that she skinned warren but the fact that okay she's uh, maybe just speaking for myself i basically forgot that andrew and jonathan were even part of the consideration at this point like (sighs) it felt i realized that willow doesn't necessarily have the context for this in the moment but to me as a viewer, it felt like they've been dealt with. They've been caught. They're in jail. They're being punished. Willow's goal was to track down Warren, who's the one who actually did this, and get her revenge. And now, as graphic and horrible and morally compromising as it is, she's gotten her revenge, so maybe we're done. No. But no, we're not. And here's the shock, is that she adopts the board now and says, one down, and then disappears, and you know that she is not satisfied with her vengeance it's going to continue from here yeah yeah and i think that the disappearing in flash of lightning that's one thing that we've never seen her do before right yeah Uh, so uh yeah so uh i did want to talk about a little bit which brings me back again to the title of this episode uh which makes you think you initially think, oh, this is going to be about Warren, Jonathan, and Andrew. They're the villains, right? Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, it's a little bit about them, but there's good. The fourth villain, the big bad villain, is uh-huh. revealed in this episode. This this reminds me. I'm sorry, I have to cross the streams for just a second because I am <laughs> I am I am giddy with the experience of watching uh the clone star wars the clone wars season seven right now yeah we're we're coming to the end game of that whole storyline and there is some amazing stuff going on in that that i just cannot get over um but the most recent 
well, actually I say the most recent, but today we're recording this on Friday and a brand new episode dropped today that I haven't watched yet. But uh, the most recent episode I've watched was called The Phantom Apprentice, uh, which is an Ooh. obvious an obvious count, a callback <laughs> to The Menace. Phantom Menace. And so many people that I've seen discuss that episode say that The Phantom Apprentice refers to either Darth Maul, who's back, by the way, spoiler alert, if you didn't know this about <laughs> Star Wars, Darth Maul is still alive, um, or Ahsoka Tano. And uh, no, that's not what's going on. That is not what the title refers <gasps> to. The title refers to Anakin Skywalker, who off camera at that very moment, as we're watching that episode, he is the Phantom Apprentice. He is the one who has been secretly being trained, you know, conditioned by uh, by Palpatine to become the next uh, Sith Apprentice or whatever. And nobody realizes it until basically this moment so anyways i was just ah. a, another example of a title <laughs> okay. that people think they know what it means but no not really it means something else hmm. uh, that well. was that was an indulgent side i'm sorry okay i i have to confess i have not seen that series at all okay so. that's fine I, I most of our audience probably hasn't um yeah so there's I, whedon and the writers have never been shy about acknowledging the whole dark phoenix influence that's going yes, on that's going that's on true. here although the episode this episode itself at least i don't remember either of these episodes ever making a reference to dark phoenix feels like something xander will or or should comment on i, th I think he will okay in the in the next either in the next episode or the final episode yeah 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 maybe during the yellow crayon speech i don't know but anyways the, the title villains i agree uh is more of a reference to i mean it kind of talks about villain origin stories maybe it's it's like mm -hmm. yeah. this this is this is what makes villains i guess basically this yeah. is this is how villains become villains agreed hmm. <sighs> well i think we got through the, uh, yeah the i mean i don't know how satisfying this conversation was for anybody uh, I'm sure many people, if any, if anybody's listening to this, <laughs> these episodes, I'm sure they have things they want to say, and we probably didn't make everyone happy at all. No, I mean, the, by their very nature, you can't. Fans cannot make each other happy in the discussion of these two episodes. But yeah, um, yeah I mean, the, these, these are. I mean, I not to not to shill our book, but we do have two essays about Willow and Tara in Buffy Goes Dark that cover do you, most of the issues. Do you remember from what both they were? Sides. I'm looking at this book. By the way, it's a signed copy yeah. from you. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. Oh, um, but sure. I'm flipping through this book. Do you remember what the particular essays you're referring to are? Yes. Um, actually, uh, one is called Evil, Skanky, and Kind of Gay, Lesbian Images and Issues by Alyssa Wiltz. Oh, sure enough. And there the other is. one, It's Complicated Because of Tara... History, Identity, Politics, and the Straight White Male Author by Brandy Ryan. Right there, back to back. <laughs> yep. The the first two. Uh, oh no, that's not the first two essays in here. They're in this section the called section characters. Two. Yeah, lovers, fans, and heroes. There's um, also a fun essay about Andrew. So. The Candide of Sunnydale, Andrew Wells as satire of pop culture and marketing trends by Iris Shaw and Anshaw. Uh, yeah, I uh, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't reread those before this discussion. I I was so focused on your your Yates and the widening gyre stuff. 
I was so I was so zeroed in on the the seeing red of it all that I didn't read the Willow and Tara stuff. I apologize. Um, yeah, so I think both of those are good. Talked about this question of you know why did they kill Tara? Rep, the question of representation, mm-hmm. um, all of those issues. Yeah. So and then I'll give you these. Um, online yeah so so i will obviously i'll share the links to the the articles that you referenced uh in the show notes and as always i will include uh, a link to the books that we talked about um so both of your books i think people should probably take a look at it and and dusted since i even i I feel like i outed those guys i'm sorry (laughs) hey you know controversy yeah yeah. Here, so. I have such a stack of the oh that yeah there's the physical copy of dusted right next to me I could have picked this up uh Lawrence Miles Lars Pearson and Krista Dixon are the authors listed on the cover of dusted but yeah I'll include links to all of this stuff in the show notes so man it was it was a struggle we did it I don't know how well we did it but we did it it's there and um I strongly encourage our listeners, any and all of our listeners who I'm sure have opinions to share with us to please share those opinions. Um, yes. Let us know what you think. Um, yell at us or me, yell at me. Don't yell, don't (laughs) yell at Elizabeth. She doesn't deserve any of your ire, but I'm an idiot and I can, I can take it, please. Well, I am on Twitter. If you want to yell at me on Twitter, (laughs) it's it's fine. At uh, EL Rambo, correct? That's correct. Okay. So yes, follow Elizabeth. She's a wonderful person, uh, an amazing friend. Uh, Pam and I love you. Pam says hello, by the way. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. You all are great, too. We're okay. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, follow Elizabeth. Uh, Please, please uh, read her books because they're great. And um, yeah, share. Yell at me. Don't yell at Elizabeth, but yell at me. Um, You can find links to this and all of the past episodes uh, at the website conswithdead.com uh, you can also sus- subscribe to the show on iTunes uh, and if you do that please rate us or write us a review that helps spread the word and bring new listeners in um, and yeah uh, if you have questions for me or any of my guests or if you'd just like to share what I'm sure are your very uh, passionate thoughts and opinions on the stuff that we've discussed please join the conversation uh, drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com uh, follow us on twitter at conswithdead or reach out to us on facebook uh, facebook.com slash conswithdead so next time around some lucky lucky guest I'm not, I haven't uh, I'm not 100% sure who yet but somebody some winner <laughs> will be joining me uh, as we bid farewell to the the feel good party that has been season 6 with episodes 621 2 to go and 622 grave until then, Gur Arg, everybody. Gur Arg. It's just us.